Hello and welcome to Thunderdome. I'm Ben Domenech. This is Thanksgiving week in America, so we're taking some time off from the normal podcast that you would hear at this point. But we still wanted to give you something to escape to when your relatives become a little too obnoxious. So this is a conversation that I had just a couple weeks ago with Texas Senator Ted Cruz about his new book and about politics in general. It's something that I hope will be of interest to you and will tide you over until we're back next week with your regularly scheduled Thunderdome. Senator Cruz, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. And it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk to you about uh, your book, uh, but I also have to ask you uh, just a basic question to start with. When you're trying to tackle the challenge of wokeness, uh, the the terminology has become very sloppy within this space. Um, it's poorly defined. It feels like people use it to describe all manner of different things. When you were setting down to start this project, did you feel it necessary to really define your terms of what that means uh, in a in a clear way uh, between perhaps things that just irritate people and things that actually are really tearing the country apart? Well, I, I did, and, and, and it's the reason for the subtitle uh, of the book. So the title of the book is Unwoke, but the subtitle is How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. Be- because what we're fighting is something very specific. If you look at the major institutions of our country, all of them have been captured by the extreme left. And, and that's not an accident. That didn't just happen organically. It did, they didn't just stumble into control. It was a systematic plan that, that was designed in the 1960s. You go back and look at Marxist scholars who began in the universities. And, and so my book, uh, chapter one, is the universities, which I call the Wuhan lab of the woke virus. Uh, it, it is where the virus was created. It's where it mutated and it's where it spread. And in fact, my alma mater, Harvard and Harvard Law School in particular, was, was ground zero. And, and what happened, it started originally as just, just plain vanilla Marxist, as, as adherents of Karl Marx, as, as in, individuals, professors and academics who believed that the world was in constant and inevitable crisis, that history was predetermined in moving forward with that crisis, and that crisis was a constant battle between oppressors and victims. And in Marx's taxonomy, it was between the owners of capital and the proletariat, the workers. And the solution that Marx posits is force, is a revolution of the proletariat to overthrow the owners of capital, to seize their capital, and to forcibly take it and redistribute it. That is Marxism as it started. And what happened in the universities is it then transmogrified. It became, initially it became critical legal theory, where they used the Marxist lens, but they applied it to law. And they said the purpose of law as it exists pre-revolution, is to enable the oppressors to oppress the victims. And the answer, again, is by force to oppress the oppressors and to redistribute the benefits to the victims. They spread it then to gender, and you had you had criti- critical feminist studies, and then they spread it to race, and you had critical race theory. And each of these uses the Marxist frame but the window of who's oppressed and who's victim changes. So critical race theory, America is a constant battle between the races and the oppressing races are the bad guys. They are inevitably racist. They cannot help but being racist. And the victims are perpetual victims. And the answer 
is to use government force to oppress the oppressors and elevate the victims. With that mindset, they then proceeded to systematically take over every major organ of transmission of ideas in our country. So they went from the universities to K through 12 education, to journalism, to big tech, to big business, to entertainment, to sports, to science. And so the book, each chapter takes a different one of those institutions and it outlines how this cultural Marxist view, how these radicals took over and, and began using their power. Cultural Marxism, wokeism is about force. It is about using force to make you comply with the only acceptable worldview, the worldview they have, which is that heretofore victims must be elevated and everyone else must be forcefully oppressed. The uh, element of the universities and the role that they played in this is obviously something that we hear a lot of people complain about, and it's become uh, an even uh, greater aspect of conversation in the wake of their reactions, the reactions of many prominent student groups at prominent institutions across the country uh, to what we see going on in Israel and Gaza. Yeah, yeah. The question that I hear over and over again from conservatives uh, is some version of why are these entities still benefiting from the U.S. tax code? Why are they benefiting from nonprofit status? Why are we granting them this type of vaunted place within uh, you know, the American system that they clearly no longer hold to, uh, even as they are infecting the minds of so many uh, young uh, potential quote-unquote leaders of the next generation? Well, look, we shouldn't be. And and the reason that we have been tolerating and supporting this is, is the left views this fight as li life or death. This is a fight to take over America. This is a fight to destroy America. Part of the cultural Marxist view is that the flag that is right behind you there, Ben, they view as an evil symbol. They view the founding of America as a sad and evil day. It was a victory by the oppressors over the oppressed. And they want to undo the American experiment. They want to undo capitalism, which they view simply as a mechanism for oppressing victims. You know, you look at universities right now at the violence uh, directed against Jewish students, at the anti-Semitism, the virulent anti-Semitism. You know, I watched this morning a video of Jewish students at Cooper Union hiding in the, in the library, fearing for their own safety because of an angry, pro-Hamas demonstration right outside. Uh, you had a student at, at Columbia University who was beaten with a stick, a Jewish student. And, and it's interesting, I've in the last few days, I've spoken with several Jewish friends of mine who are left of center, who've been shocked at, at, at the just blatant, the vicious anti-Semitism on the far left. And they hadn't quite seen it until the last couple of weeks when it has manifested including 35 student groups at Harvard, saying that all of the violence in Israel, the, the, the civilians Hamas has murdered, the women and girls they've raped, all of that is the fault of Israel. And, it, and it's a grotesque, hate-filled statement. And, and I was talking with, with a couple of my, my Jewish liberal friends, and I pointed out, I said, look, the problem is, in the universities, they have this cultural uh, Marxist mindset and Jews are coded as oppressors. That means 
everything Jews do is wrong because in their view, you are oppressors, the Palestinians are the victims. And so the victims in their worldview are justified in murdering the oppressors. That's that's part of, you know, a, a Marxist revolution is not a peaceful res- revolution. It is often a violent revolution. Now, much of what has happened in our institutions has been what 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 early scholars, one one Italian scholar named Gramsci described as as the long slow mar- uh, march through institutions, and and so they they've done both. They've done the violent revolution, which they do not uh, uh, forswear at all, but they've also systematically crept it up from within. And the problem, Ben, those of us who are conservatives, those of us who believe in 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 liberty, those of us who believe in the Constitution, those of us who believe in common sense, historically have not focused on defending those institutions. We've sat by quietly and let them take them over. And this book is a roadmap. Here's how we fight back. Here's how we take these institutions back, because when we take these institutions back, we take America back. Let's talk about um, the, the soft power aspect of of one of these, which seems to be, you know, even if you can see the tools that can be used against some of these institutions, it seems to be the hardest nut for conservatives or or liberty minded people to crack, and that's the entertainment side of things. Yeah, um, I uh, I note, uh, you know, in the in your chapter on this, you mention um, you mention uh, Craig Mazin's work and The Last of Us. Uh, you note the, you know, some of the different you know people who flow into the creative space. But here's where I'm curious. It seems to me that you know whenever there is a point of an inflection point on the on the financial side, for instance, uh, the things that get canceled tend to be the most woke things that these entities are creating. In fact, I went through the last time that Netflix had a down quarter, and they canceled almost 200 different projects. And when you look down the list, first off, it was notable for how few of them you would even recognize, but you, it was also notable how many of them were essentially branded around their woke agenda, as opposed to, you know, any kind of storyline or any kind of, of uh, larger point. And of course, the things that survive are, you know, cop show with classic male lead. <laughs> you know? And and so it's, it's one of these things where, you know, Hollywood really wants people to uh, you know, to watch these things or to, uh, uh, you know, actually hear this message that they're sending. But it actually turns out that that's not what the audiences want and uh, and it's not what they're clamoring for. Does that give you hope, for one thing? And do you think that just given the general tenor of how tiresome that woke agenda is, that that just naturally creates opportunities for you know, content that has, I mean, red state appeal is a bit too, uh, is a bit too trite of a term, but, you know, appeal to audiences uh, who are more interested in the storyline and in, in classic elements of, of entertainment uh, than they are in the Marxist agenda that underlies so many of these. So it, it, it does give me encouragement. Look, the ideas of the cultural Marxists are, are not popular. They're not ideas that most Americans agree with. That's why they they have really two mechanisms for pushing them. Number one is force. When they have the ability to use force, they will. That's why they cancel people. If you dare say that a human being with male genitalia is, is a male and he happens to decide he's a female, 
You can be canceled. You can be fired. You can be banned. You can be unfriended. And that's force because everyone on planet Earth knows what the hell a man is and knows what the hell a woman is. Mm -hmm. Even the people spouting this nonsense. It's part of the reason why they're reduced to such imbecility, such such yabbering. When you ask at Senate hearings, I asked one of these left wing activists, is there a difference between women and men? She was unable to answer that question. For all of human history, that has been a really obvious question. What is a woman has only become a trick question in the last five years. Their ideas are profoundly unpopular. So they rely on force that you will lose your job. And the number of people who are scared to speak out against this, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter in the wake of George Floyd, you had the NBA putting it on, on, on the floors, you had them on, on shirts, you had, you had it everywhere. And, and people who were concerned, what is this organization? What does this mean? Were afraid to open the, their mouths. They could lose their job. Now, one of the things actually I talk about, as you know, I do a podcast every week called Verdict with Ted Cruz. We do it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We did a podcast last week, uh, the entirety of which was Black Lives Matter is Hamas. And Black Lives Matter, the organization, what I explained is, look, the phrase Black Lives Matter is a truism. Everyone agrees with that. Of course, yes, absolutely, Black Lives Matter. But the organization, Black Lives Matter, Inc., was founded by three avowed Marxists, trained Marxists. And it, it, its founding principles include the destruction of the nuclear family, the destruction of capitalism, the abolition of private property, and the utter destruction of Israel. Black Lives Matter is profoundly anti-Semitic. One of its founders called for the utter elimination of the state of Israel. In the wake of these terror attacks, you've seen Black Lives Matter chapters tweeting out their support for the Hamas terrorists. And, and I pointed out, I said, look, on the podcast, I read through a bunch of the major corporations that had written checks, had given millions and millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter. And I said, every one of you ought to ask these companies. You ought to ask Apple. You ought to ask Amazon. You ought to, ought to ask BlackRock. You ought to ask Coca-Cola. Do you support this viciously anti-Semitic organization that hates Israel and has explicitly embraced Hamas terrorists murdering and raping civilians. Now, what's interesting, two things are interesting on that. Number one, the fact that they hated America and hated capitalism didn't make corporate America worried at all. Hating America is just fine. But when it became clear that they were supporting Hamas terrorists, at least one of those, those companies, Coca-Cola, the day after I put my podcast out, the next day, Coca-Cola quietly erase their support for Black Lives Matter from their website. The day before they had it up there, we proudly support Black Lives Matter, and they just went in and hit delete. Look, that's a positive step forward of accountability. That's one way they push this forward is force. The other way they do it is they start young. And one of the things to understand, communists always, always, always start with the children. Uh, this book for me is very personal because you, you know my, my family story. My father was born in Cuba and as a teenager, my father was, was a revolutionary. He fought with Fidel Castro. And, and my dad describes to me, he said, look, the, the, the people fighting in the revolution, they were just like me. They were 14 and 15 year old boys. They didn't know any better. They were filled with passion. They were filled with, we can make the world a better place. 
and they were young and ignorant and naive. And, and that is who Marxism targets. That's who, if you look at communist movements in every country on earth, that's who they target. And actually the very opening of the book, I describe a story from Cuba. So my grandmother was a sixth grade teacher. And when Castro succeeded, they immediately went into the elementary schools. Che Guevara said, give me the children and I'll take the country. And they went in, they described the children as malleable clay. And the soldiers would go into kindergartens, they'd go into first grades, and they'd tell all the students, they'd say, kids, close your eyes, pray to God for candy. And the kids would do so. They'd open their eyes, there'd be no candy. Then the soldiers would say, close your eyes and pray to Fidel Castro for candy. The kids closed their eyes and the soldiers would quietly put a piece of candy on each child's desk. That's what Marxism is, destroying your allegiance to everything, to God, to country, to family, to your parents, to your children, to your wife. It is only the state. It is only the all-powerful state to whom you owe an allegiance. Uh, last question for you, uh, unrelated to the book, though slightly. Um one of the things that we've seen in the wake of uh, the pandemic and during the pandemic is obviously this mass cultural sort uh, of people away from blue states uh, and into red states. You can see all the different U-Haul patterns and the like. Yep. And this has been nowhere, I think, as true uh, as people coming from California and going to Texas. And that's a good and a bad thing. You like to see people coming into your state. You like to see, you know, uh, the 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 entire, I feel like, comedic network of people whose podcasts I listen to have relocated to the Austin area to because they enjoy performing at, at Joe Rogan's mothership, uh, including, you know, most recently Shane Gillis moving down from you know, a, a lifetime, you know, Philly and New York, uh, uh, Upper East Coast kind of guy, you know, moving to Austin. Are you at all concerned about them changing the state and bringing some of their ideas with them? You know, namely saying, you know, Texas is really great, but there was this one thing that California did that we should probably do here that would make it even better. How do you hold on to the things that attracted them in the first place and tell them very politely, please leave those bad ideas back in California and keep Texas, Texas? So look, Ben, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. And I talked to a lot of Texans who, who raised that question. I, I really break the in-migration in, into two camps. Number one, there are people who are in blue states and, and they're fed up. They can't stand uh, the taxes, the regulations, the woke politics with COVID, the shutdown. They get sick of it all. And, and, and they look all across the country and they say, where do I want to be? And they pick Texas. And the data show those folks actually coming to Texas are more conservative than the median voter. They show up in Texas and they buy a pickup truck and a hat and boots and a <laughs> shotgun. And, and, and I call them yeah. refugees for freedom. Those guys are fantastic. Look, you and Megan, I've had conversations with you guys about coming to Texas. Yeah. We want you in Texas, because if you come to Texas, you're coming for the right reason. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great thing. And we have lots and lots of people that are coming to Texas for that reason. The problem is there's another group of people that are coming to Texas, which is a company moves to Texas and it transfers all of its employees. 
And those employees didn't necessarily decide. They didn't wake up and say, you know, I can't stand California. I can't stand New York. I want to be in Texas. Instead, they just decide to go with their job. Well, this is my job, so I guess I'm moving to Texas. And in those circumstances, those people vote exactly like where they came from. They don't understand why it is they had to go to Texas. And so I talked, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting down talking to Elon Musk. I spent a couple of hours with Elon. One of the things I urged Elon, I'm like, look, you've moved all these techies to Texas. You know why you came to Texas. Elon, please make sure your employees know, because I'm worried you just imported 10,000 Democrats into the state of Texas to vote to turn Texas into California, which you were fleeing to get into a land of sanity. So we've got both. And that's what makes Texas a battleground. Mm -hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see uh, who wins that that argument. And I'm glad that you uh, reminded Elon of that. Uh, Senator Cruz, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And everyone, please go buy the book, Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books, buy the book. It's a fun read. It's filled with stories. It's, it's, it brings you inside and it gives you a path to understand how we got where we are. And in particular, a plan to fight back and win. Thank you, sir.